Today's episode of the Hail to the District podcast is brought to you by the Young Tennis Players Project, our presenting sponsor for 2018. The Young Tennis Players Project retails sports apparel, but with a unique twist. The majority of the proceeds goes towards helping young athletes receive hands-on tennis lessons and training, which can get very expensive, while the remainder actually goes back to the investors in a revenue-sharing opportunity for those who participate. And with no upfront costs, there's no risk. It's actually all upside. So to learn more, visit www.ytp.tennis, that's www.ytp.tennis, or just click on the link in our friends and sponsors section on the Hail to the District homepage. All right, so I think this turned out to be a really great podcast episode, if I do say so myself. In part one, we were joined by Grant Paulson of 106.7 The Fan and NBCS in Washington to talk about the Kirk Cousins contract situation, the number one topic in D.C. sports radio, and provide thoughts on where he'll be playing next fall. And it'd be a hint, it may not be in D.C. And then in part two, my buddy John hopped on to talk about the Wizards and the players-only meeting disaster, which obviously did a whole bunch of good for this struggling team. So all of that in mind, on to the podcast. Welcome to the Hail to the District podcast with your host, Rajan Nanavati. Welcome to the Hail to the District podcast. I'm Rajan, and I'm extremely pleased today to have um, basically the DMV's finest and the voice of DC Sports Talk Radio, none other than Mr. Grant Paulson. Um, Grant, how are you doing this evening? Thank you. It's kind of you to say I'm doing great. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Of course. Thank you so much for your time. Um, definitely a privilege to have you on. And uh, I know you got a lot going on. So just in the interest of time, kind of wanted to write, get, get down to the main topic of discussion, which is basically everyone's favorite topic around here. And that's Kirk Cousins in the ongoing saga of will he or will he not re-sign with the Redskins. Um, we're basically a few weeks away from anything really happening since he's kind of alluded that nothing's really going to happen before the franchise de- tag deadline, which I think is March 6th. Um, I'll start with this. As far as what's going to happen at that deadline and, and then kind of over the summer, which we're used to over the last couple of summers by now, but what do you personally think is going to happen um, come the last week of February, maybe that first day of March or first few days of March? Well, I think right before the deadline in late February into early March, I think so his agent and the Redskins will have conversations about a long-term contract. I think the Redskins will make an offer. It'll probably be similar to the offers that they've made over the last couple of years with the inflation of the market, which is you know that the cap is now up to about $178 million accounted for. Uh, he's probably going to be offered something in the range of $26, 27000000 million, I would imagine, uh, per year annually with guaranteed money over the first couple of seasons of that deal. Yeah, he's not going to take that offer. Probably shouldn't take that offer from a business standpoint. And what I would do if I was the Redskins is make a substantial enough offer that I could then turn around and try to win in the court of public opinion, which is what they like to do. And that way, at least they can say to their fans, even if it's not completely correct, hey, we did everything we could. We slow played this. We want to get a deal done. He wants to hit the market. We tried our best. And then the million dollar question becomes, do they place the transition tag on him? Do they place the franchise tag on him? Or do they allow him to become a free agent and hit the market without any tag? The franchise tag would pay him $34 million for one year. Uh, they cannot place the non-exclusive tag on him uh, any longer. It has to be the exclusive franchise tag. The transition tag would basically allow him to be free agent on restricted rights so that whatever deal he agrees to elsewhere, the Redskins could match and retain its services at that number of years for that much money. 
and then the outright free agency option would mean that they just allow him to test the market and potentially come back and sign here if he finds out that this is the best fit for him. I don't think the franchise tag at $34 million against the cap makes any sense. It's too much money. You can't pay a quarterback that much of your cap, uh, whether it's Cousins or anybody else that isn't Breeze or Brady or Rodgers. So that's not going to happen. The better question then becomes the transition tag, transitional free agency or outright free agency. And I think the play for Washington is the transition tag because what you could potentially do is throw a transition tag on him, get him back for one year at $28 million if he doesn't agree to a deal elsewhere. And I don't think he would because of the fear that Washington could match an offer and he'd be here for the long term and he wouldn't be able to negotiate a long-term deal elsewhere next year. So transition him, let him test the market. Uh, he'll probably not sign a long-term deal. And if he does, you have a chance to match it. If he doesn't, he's here for another one year, $28 million. Uh, at which point your task then becomes try not to let this relationship get to the point where it's untenable and try to you know, patch up whatever many rips there are at this point between he and Bruce Allen and Dan Snyder and Jay Gruden. Yeah, I think the interesting, I completely agree with everything you said. I think the interesting component as far as for the transition tag is whether or not team throws kind of a quote unquote poison pill type of deal where they front load it. Um, I don't know if there's what the NFL has done from a restriction standpoint in terms of like really, really front loading the uh, contract to prevent. Um, I know it's happened a few years in the past, but to prevent that from from other teams from doing so. But lately, over the last couple of weeks, I know Denver. We've had other guests on this podcast allude to the fact that Denver is a big contender. Cleveland's got like a hundred million dollars worth of cap room, some obscene number. Um, Jacksonville's name keeps popping up. I think it was today over the last couple of days. And the New York Jets, a lot of a lot of buzz in the New York area about wanting to bring Cousins over there. So they're definitely teams. It's a really good point as far as whether he's going to sign a long term deal only to have the Redskins turn around and match it and I do think there's a lot of points whether you know the Redskins will say okay go out and determine what is your salary really and then we'll kind of you know that's where we'll start our our long-term contract negotiations with you or we'll kind of just say okay if that's what the market says you're worth then that's what we'll pay up um, instead of them setting the market so I, I definitely agree with a lot of those a lot of that a lot of those points yeah and the Jets made a move within the last 24 hours where they brought in an offensive coordinator who's a Mike Shanahan disabled yep. disciple and what that would mean is that potentially he's running a passing offense similar to the one that Kyle and Mike Shanahan ran. Kirk Cousins would have some interest, you would think, in, in operating in that offense and leading that huddle. He'd also be able to make a couple of quick calls to a couple of guys he thinks very highly of to get maybe some information you know, on going to New York, and that would make it more enticing. They also have a, a solid defense and were competitive this year way beyond what people would have expected with Josh McCown at quarterback, who's not of Cousins' caliber, obviously. I think he'd be well, welcomed with open arms by the fan base, by Todd Bowles and most of the players in that locker room because they've been ravenous for a quarterback over the last few seasons and just haven't gotten the production yeah. in the position that they need. And they feel like they're a quarterback away from being in that tent win mix. I've always kind of thought Denver made the most sense. I think they're going to go the route of a veteran passer. They've tried to draft quarterbacks. You can look back at Tim Tebow in the first round. Much more recently in this regime with John Elway, Paxton Lynch, uh, it's a situation where they have an older, aging, veteran defense that is still good enough to win with. It's not Super Bowl level like it was when they were last in the game with Peyton Manning a few years ago. But if you bring in a quarterback, all of a sudden your receiving core of Demaris Thomas and Emmanuel Sanders gets a little bit better. You take a little pressure off of your offensive line; he'll get the ball out very quickly. Uh, he's able, as he saw this year, to, to move around in the pocket a little bit and extend plays from time to time. You get your running game to a point where it is secondary and not having to be the 
lead resource for you when you've got the football. And I think that helps CJ Anderson and company. So to me, that's a team that would absolutely make sense. And Jacksonville's got to decide that they want to spend a lot of money, but here's the one fascinating caveat to the cousins conversation. And something that no one's talking about is if he's not a transition tagged transitional free agent, and he just hits the market outright. I believe that cousins would sign for less money to play for a contender like Jacksonville or like Denver. He may want 27 to 29 million from the Redskins. Yeah. He doesn't necessarily need 27 to 29 million. I don't think to go to Jacksonville or to Denver. So I think everyone says, well, they can't afford him. Well, what is affording him? What if he just signs there at 21 million and they have to guarantee him the first three or four years of the deal? What he cares about is the guaranteed money. So let them get creative, spend a bunch of money up front, guaranteed, keep you around for three or four years as a commitment right when you show up on day one. And maybe you take a smaller cap number. That's not something he's going to be willing to do here because he doesn't feel like the Redskins have earned that. But maybe he'll do that in his next stop where they're rolling out the red carpet for him. They stayed really healthy this year, and I don't think a lot of people are talking about that. But can you imagine if Jacksonville's receivers get healed up? Like Allen Robinson comes back. Allen Hearns, has, he's been banged up the last two years. But if Hearns is there, they've got depth in Westbrook and Marquise Lee. And you put Cousins into that mix, maybe you know get a fix up the offensive line, I think, on the interior. That's a really scary team. Again, the defense was healthy all year. But you combine that defense with with you know a competent quarterback who can actually they can rely on for you know more than just a couple of games here and there that's a really scary thought you're shifting the balance of power for once in the afc that we haven't seen in a long while and if he was yeah, able to sign a team-friendly contract to your point yeah i'd agree with you uh, jacksonville is so close as people saw this year they would have won the afc title game with a better quarterback and it's not the Blake Bortles played poorly. I think the lazy analysis being done is looking at his numbers and saying he played really well, though. He made a bunch of throws, one read, kind of quick, safe, accurate tosses that he needed to make. By his standards, he had an exceptional game, and and he didn't kill them by any means. He didn't turn the ball over, didn't do anything egregiously awful, but he needed to make one or two big throws in the second half, and he wasn't able to. And they had three or four drives late in that game where they got the ball back on the precipice of putting the game away, where New England is down 10 or down 7, and if he goes out and he's missing open receivers, you know, he makes one throw, he throws one guy open, he breaks the pocket, makes a big play just one time, it might put him over the top and it didn't happen. And I just have a hard time believing that when they get back to the drawing board as a front office and they welcome Doug Marone and his staff into a boardroom, these windows are so fleeting and so small and your chance to be good is so quick in this league. I just don't think you want to waste the prime of this defense's next two or three seasons trying to mess around with Blake Bortles, not to mention Bortles because they have to pick up the option of the fifth year of his career now coming up. His salary jumps up to over $18 million. I was going to say it's a $19 million so it's range. one thing if you yeah. have him on that rookie deal where he's playing a few million bucks. But if he's playing for $18 million, you could do a lot better than Blake Bortles at that price tag, not, to, not the least of which of your options would include at that money, I would say at least two of the three Minnesota Vikings that are leaving on a multi-year deal. You could probably get Case Keenum at two or three years at around 18 mil. You could get Teddy Bridgewater, who was a first-round pick at that money. And I'm not a huge Teddy Bridgewater guy, but I would take him over Blake Bortles at this point. Yeah, that was something the Carcaters have all kind of been saying. They're like, well, look at the th- four teams in the NFC in the in the respective championship games. You got, you know, the Jaguars did it without paying a lot of money to their quarterback. The Vikings did it. Um, the Eagles obviously did it because with Wentz and Foles and what have you. But you know, 
I'm more of the opinion that like that was more of an anomaly more than anything else. You've got two quarterbacks on the rookie deal. You have Case Keenum, who kind of, I don't want to say came out of nowhere, but they were able to make that work because the defense was so good. And I don't know that that's the norm. I mean, you still, more often than not, you got guy have guys like, you know, Russell Wilson and Aaron Rodgers and Tom Brady and Ben Roethlisberger playing. And that, those are the teams that ultimately advance far enough. So the whole, you know, Shave, save your money on the quarterback and spend it everywhere else. I don't know if that's really a viable model. It may work for a year or two in our fluke situation, but I don't know really if that's sustainable well, in the in the NFL. I, I think it's a good point. Obviously, the best option you have and the best thing that you can do is to build a complete roster while not paying your very good young quarterback little money, right? That's a difficult road to hold up. And I think what teams find is if you draft the right quarterback, you better strike gold while they're young, like Seattle did with Russell Wilson. Yeah. Uh, the Cowboys are trying to do that with Dak Prescott right now, because ultimately you have to pay that guy a lot of money. They don't get to stay cheap forever. So you're going to have to pay them anyway. So this idea of, well, draft, pay nothing, get the kid, unless you're winning in those first three years of that deal, their money jumps up pretty substantially thereafter anyway. Right. Uh, I think that that model does work. It is successful. Um, but the best quarterbacks in the league generally the last quarterback standing period. They just are. Yeah. So, yeah, people can point to who was in the conference finals. I would venture to guess that none of those three guys will end up winning the Super Bowl and that their performances are going to end up being reasons why. Keenum throwing a pick six, struggling a little bit for the Vikings, swung that pendulum of that game. Obviously, when you look at some of the other teams that struggled in the playoffs, like Bortles, AFC title game, conference finals. Jared Goff. If you do not have one of the elites in the league, you generally are not going to be in the conversation. Is Cousins one of the elites in the league? No. He's really good and he gives you a shot. And those guys, once every several years, when they get hot, Eli Manning, Joe Flacco, they're capable of winning you one. Yeah, I think that's a really good point as well that, you know, he's not in the top six or seven we can't count them in the elite quarterbacks group but yeah to your very much to your point that if they get hot in the right you know situation if, if the snowball's rolling kind of like what happened with Flacco in 2012 yeah you know you've got a guy who who can at least get you there make sure you can drive the car to where you need to get it to um keeping an eye on the clock and being respectful over your time if you had to bet your your mortgage or your rent on it um do you think Cousins is playing here in 2018 I would say no yeah and at this point, I don't think that's a slam dunk that he wouldn't be back. But if I had to make a bet right now, I'd say no for a few reasons. One, I think he really wants to test the market. He hasn't had the ability to pick where he played since he chose Michigan State. I think he wants to do that. I think he's probably earned the right to do that. I never believe a player of, of that thinking. Second, from the team perspective, I don't think the Redskins are intoxicated by the idea and enamored with the thought that they'll just continue to go year to year with him and the money keeps skyrocketing his performance isn't falling off so you're not getting any closer to a long-term deal now you're talking about paying him close to 30 million or 34 million depending on the transition of the franchise tag you already saw jay gruden come out on his coach's show late this season in december say that he doesn't want to have cousins back on a one-year deal so from the team perspective i'm not sure that it makes a lot of sense either so you add those two things together I just think we're getting to a point where unless they come together on a long-term contract, which I think is extremely unlikely this offseason, I can't really see a happy ending. You know, in the past, you could kind of see how it could work out. Now I only see this thing getting worse, not necessarily better from a business standpoint. 
Yeah, I think you feel like you're just duct taping a marriage that's better off with both parties going their separate ways with this year to year thing. And I think the more you do it, the more it's just kind of the resentments festering between both sides. And I agree that, you know, Gruden has parsed his words in terms of how he feels about the cousin situation, but they've also couched it very much that, like, look, you know, there's a lot of people, I guess coaches included, who feel like if Cousins is gone, Colt can run the offense, Colt McCoy can run the offense sufficiently, probably maybe not as well as Cousins, but enough to where. He's maybe the stopgap or the bridge quarterback to the next guy. So, yeah, I feel like this, the sentiment's gone very much in the favor of you know I don't know if Kirk is going to be here next year. Um, I tend to agree with you as well on that. So yeah, I think that's the big key is you know where where do they go from here? Colt McCoy is under contract would be the first guy that would turn to as a veteran. Can you do better than him without breaking the bank? I think you probably can. I've mentioned the Viking situation. I would take Bradford over him for a year or two, even as an injury-riddled guy. I would take Keenum over him uh, just for a season or two. Uh, I think Keenum's probably staying put. You know, Bridgewater, I would take over him as well just because of the youth and the upside. Um, but could you do worse than Colt McCoy? Absolutely. When you play him, you draft someone and develop them. He's your bridge, your stopgap. You, you kind of set the expectations low going into the year with your fan base. No one's expecting and has delusions of brand or some kind of playoff run with Colt McCoy. But then you allocate those funds. The most important thing they need to do as they make their Kirk Cousins decision, whatever money they save themselves, if they don't sign Kirk Cousins, they need to spend it. Yeah. They need to spend it in free agency on marquee talent. Now, they've rolled over as much as $15 million that they didn't use in the salary cap over the last few years. They're cheap, routinely under Bruce Allen at addressing needs rather than going out and getting primetime performers. They signed Terrell McClain who didn't help that much, or Stacey McGee, who's just kind of okay, or Stephen Paya. But they need to stop making moves where they try to get three guys for the price of one and go out and get some real game-changing, difference-making football players. If you just save the 27 or $30 million and you don't end up turning it back into the defensive investment needed to turn the corner as an organization, then none of this matters anyway. It's ironic that we're talking about things like that, that you need to go get the marquee talent after what this franchise has been, you know, about two decades ago or what it used to be in the good old Dan and Vinny days. So, um, Grant, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. Um, 106.7, everyone knows, everyone knows where you can find Grant among other shows. Uh, thank you once again, man. You have a great evening. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you. Have a great night. Yeah. Take care, man. Thanks. All right, before we move over to part two of the podcast, I want to give a quick shout out to our good friends at InTheGymRange.com. InTheGymRange is a great site for in-depth information on the high school, college, and NBA landscapes. You can visit them by going to InTheGymRange.com, or as always, just click on the link in the Friends and Sponsors section on the Hail to the District homepage. All right, so me, Dash, and John from Hail to the District had Jake Whitaker of Bullets Forever on the podcast last week, and we had a great conversation about the Wizards' woes of late, and in a manner befitting only of the Wizards, they had to go and have a team meeting that literally, or literally right after our pod, which it basically, as they themselves said, affected to a whole lot of nothing. So they followed up that team meeting of sorts by beating the Pistons, although allowing 112 points in the process, and then followed that up with a really, really ugly loss to the Mavericks on Monday. So anyway, I wanted to bring John back onto the pod at least to kind of dissect all the shit that took place over the last week and and do a little bit of a post-mortem on it. So, John, here we are. Yay, Wizards. Yeah, the, having a team meeting that everybody says is non-productive is really very so Wizards. I, I think the problem is they there's some definitely some clicks 
on this Wizards team. So you kind of have – I'm going to put it in – you have the wall guys, which I think Beal is part of the wall crew now. I think so too. And, and um, Keith is and Ubre is and then whoever else is kind of insignificant because they're all just guys that rotate in and out of the team every year because half their roster changes every offseason. And then the I Tim think Frazier's the other – of the world. Yep, Tim Frazier's and – you know, just the Jason Smiths that are insignificant. I would probably put Mike Scott in the the, the wall camp, possibly. Jody Meeks is irrelevant. Then the other squad I I consider would be the Gortat side. But who's left? Which is, a, which is a very small side, which I think is really just Gortat and Otto. Interesting. So you but would- I don't think Otto's the problem. I think I think Gortat's the big problem because Beal had a little blurb where basically said he essentially said, you know, you can kind of you got to know how to deal with each guy like Ubre, You can you can kind of poke and prod and he's fine. And if he doesn't feel it, he just he just shuts you out. But he kind of the way that he described Gortat was like how I would describe my three-year-old. You got to put the kid gloves on when you talk to him because if you say something the wrong way, they just kind of shut down and cry about it. I did read that quote. So I, I think that 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 is kind of your your problem. And it's something that we've been witnessing for the past two years now. Because I remember last year at the home opener against Toronto, we both looked at each other. And there's one play where Gortat got knocked over and nobody helped him up. Nobody. Like, I know exactly nobody on this team likes this guy. And I just I think that the fact they had a relatively successful season and they had a decent run in the playoffs. But then he came out in the offseason and said, we're going to weigh our options. And then his agent looked out and goes, nobody wants a center, a, 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 a old school style NBA center anymore. Nobody wants this. There's no market for you. You're stuck, dude. And he kind of like fell back into place. But now I think he's creeping up again. So it's funny. Uh, did you read the Jonathan Sharks piece on the ringer? I for, did for the trade. That was pretty much one of the most depressing things you'll ever read where it's like the, he basically said like the wizards need a change and there's literally no way to change it because they're so fucked right now. Like they're trying to trade. They're try, they'll, even if they try to add two ones to Mahin me, they still no market because everyone's trying to dump their big guys. Which we made this argument back when they threw $16 million a year at Mahinmi that you just threw $64 million at a big man in an era when no one is trying to sign big men or no one is really worried about that. Like, you know, Golden State is Golden State even with Zaza Pachulia playing center. Like, it's you don't need it. And and now they're stuck with what it's it's probably close to 30 million in salary each year 31 be- million 31 just between Mahinmi and Gortat it's ridiculous and he's, they're basically saying they're like this team needs an infusion or like a creative way to get itself you know to get itself out of its current mess and if Ted keeps keeping Ernie around that there's no way creativity is going to enter this picture right yeah a lot of their cap is hung up between Jason Smith you got to throw him in there Mahinmi and Gortat and they're eating up over forty million in cap space for three guys that are irrelevant. Mahinmi's a DNP. I mean, not Mahinmi. Uh, Jason Smith. Is Jason a Smith's DNP. A DNP. So, with that, that Jonathan Chark's article, I I think that kind of tied into last week's podcast with with Jake that where he kind of said they got to move um, Gortat or Morris or both sooner than later. 
And so my opinion is this trade deadline, they need to do the best they can to move Gortat. And as you said, you can get, get away with a Zaza Pachulia. Well, we kind of have that on our lineup with Mahimi. Like, yeah. You could start him. He would be a starter name only. He would still only play 10, 15 minutes a night. And then you just rotate in the Mike Scotts and Jason Smiths. And then you, if you do trade Gortat and get an extra wing, you know, then that adds to a little bit more small ball lineup opportunities as well. So they would just end up going smaller and you just, uh, you'd, you'd still have that stiff to start the game, but they could, I think they could get away with it and that probably gives them a better formula and it gives them the shakeup that they need. So revisiting your clicks theory from the department of, I know someone who may know someone who may know some things. The hearsay from that is that the the person who everyone was kind of throwing shade at without actually mentioning names, and it's funny you said them, is Otto. Really? That's what, again, from the department that I had mentioned, that's the person. And I don't know how to unpack that because Otto just got paid. We all know that. Um, you usually have the subsequent season when someone after when so after someone gets paid, where they'll have the you know they didn't train as hard, so that leads to nagging injuries, and they obviously have a decline in performance because they're not playing to their contract years uh, caliber, and that's fine. But Otto doesn't seem like someone who would shake the boat per se, but just kind of that prolonged inconsistency, the nagging injury, the question of whether he, he could or should play through the injury the perception of him being a little soft. I don't know if that still carries forward given that plus the kind of overall stagnation. And I think walls comment where he kind of pointed up to the front office and said, you know, it's up to them to make a change or something very close to that effect. I can't remember who he said that to. I think it was to Candace Buckner of the post, but it could be wrong. Um, I think all of that package together is, is a big factor in all of this, but Otto, it's funny, you mentioned you put him in the Gortat camp because I, I am agreeing with you that I think Gortat is definitely the turd that won't flush down right now. And I know there's so many times on pick-and-roll situations where Wall kind of hands him the ball and he misses and there's some real world-class stink guys being thrown his way or being shot his way. And uh, I, I kind of think I, I'm agreeing with you that Porter's in that camp as well. Well, he he's the one that consistently goes to Poland with the – the Polish hammer every summer to help him do his camps. He's like the only wizard that goes with him. So that's why they have some bond at least. But the Gortat pick and roll used to be a a bread and butter. I mean, that was one thing where you're like, damn it, we need a basket. Let's run this because I know that there's a very good chance they're going to get something on this. And it is not there. He is significantly slower this year than in previous years. And it it's really showing on the court that the game is, is passed him by and, and he's deserving of a reserve role at this point in his career at best. Yeah. And, you know, and we talked about this, you know, we knew the day of reckoning was coming when I think it was you and me and Neil Ron, And we were talking about the season after I can't, maybe it was the first playoff season when they really broke through after they beat the Raptors and lost to, um, Indiana in, in the playoffs. 
and we had and uh, Gortel was becoming a free agent. We we're like, you had to make this move, and I think it was twelve or thirteen million per year at the time. And we said that this was the right move to bring him back. Like you had to do it at that time. But we knew over the span of that five years, you know, at this at some point, this contract's going to be an albatross. And I think now we're coming to said albatross phase where it's like, okay, now. We're still stuck. We got the two good years on the front end, and you know we, we went to the playoffs twice more, or we missed one year, but we went to the playoffs at least a couple times more. And now it's like now we're kind of scraping at the bottom of the barrel of the contract, and there's not much left there in terms of what in terms of the talent. Right. And when they signed Mahimi, the thought that, well, that I think a lot of us had was that – well, we knew that was bad, but you thought they have to trade Gortat at some point. And you thought that based on all the ridiculous contracts that everybody was getting, that his contract would seem more appealing. Like you you knew instantly he had way more trade value than Mahimi and that they would they would move him. And then Mahimi got hurt and never didn't play until late in the season and kind of, I think, threw a monkey wrench because I think that was partially the intention or at least – my perception of the intention would was be that that they would move on because you how can you pay two big men thirty one million dollars a year when nobody plays big men that much? You have to think that that was the plan. Whether the plan was well thought out is an entirely different. Oh, matter. of course it wasn't well thought out. We know who the GM is, <laughs> but. Yeah, I, I completely agree. I think that was the plan that they were like, OK, we have me and me. We'll try to, you know, find a way to package auto, uh, auto pa- package Gortat. Um, Lord knows Ernie's always ready to throw in and first round pick. That's that the charts threw out about like, you know, we traded We burned a first on Gortat. We burned a first on Keith. We burned the first on on Boyan. Like, it's just like, oh, man. And then he compared yeah. it to how like Toronto, you know, regrouped or rebuilt on the fly. And, you know, they're able in the late 20s to take someone like OG Ananobi, who looks great. Um, and, you know, meanwhile, we're sitting here with Ernie pissing away the first round picks on three month rentals. It's just delightful. Right. And the only first round pick we made actually has panned out, and that's Uber. Yeah. And actually, like, Uber imagine was, Uber is a if great we, pick for that year. Yeah. And I mean, they had to trade up to get him. And what was funny is because at the time, at the spot they were picking was. We were looking at the Bobby Portis of the of the world, and when they traded up, we're like, shouldn't we have just stayed put to get Bobby Portis? And now it's like, thank God we didn't get Bobby Portis. Yeah, and on top of that, it's like, okay, if we sell – I can't remember the exact construct of the trade, but if we threw in some second-round picks, um, fine, because it's like, okay, Sato worked out. But otherwise, Lord knows Ernie was going to draft another, you know, Johan. They haven't Peter made – I don't – can you name a second – oh, there was a Sato. white – there's some – it was like – Oh man, I can't remember his name. Some white guy that they ended up he's playing over in Europe now. Shocker. That that they picked from like Iowa or some school like that. I, Gray sticks out in my name. Uh but whatever. Oh, yeah, yeah, no, no, it was Pittsburgh. Didn't they take Aaron Gray from Pittsburgh? No. No. No, was that was him? somebody else. But it was oh. it was another it's a tall white guy because they're like, this is gonna be our stretch four. And yeah, he yeah. he stunk in summer league. He never hung on. He's playing somewhere in Europe, you know. So really, they've they've had like two second round picks in like six years. Yeah, I mean, it's how a- do you how do you build a core uh, bench when you don't draft anybody? John, it's not like we could have had Jordan Clarkson in the second round, and we instead just threw away the pick for cash. Not as bad as the Bulls with Jordan Bell. Yeah, well, the Bulls are the Bulls. I mean, you know, 
Well, actually, it's probably comparable because, I mean, they're both still reserves at the end of the day. Yeah, but, I'd, I'd rather... Yeah, yeah, but still. I, I was going to say, if you're asking... But, you, but you're still saying that you have faith that Ernie Grunfeld would have taken Jordan Clarkson. It, that They probably wouldn't no. have. They probably would have taken somebody else. They would have taken would've... some heroes, stiff. Yeah, so... Yeah, until Ted... The, the problem is, is that if this season does go south and they have to regroup, Ted has to make a move in this front office because you can't let Ernie rebuild this team. I agree with you in premise. I don't agree with you in terms of that would happen. It has to. Like, it's so crazy. I think we, we know Leon's is his propensity. I think he would give Ernie the benefit of the doubt. And then if we're at, if we're in the same boat at this point next season, then I think he would do it. But I think Leon's always fires once one year too late. And I think that's what he's going to end up doing with Ernie. Isn't he five years too late? Ernie's been too late basically since, you know, he handed a hundred million dollars like right. the second time around. Like, yes, that's when you know, we should have had a change. But the problem is, as we've gone, you said in multiple pods right now, if the playoffs started today, the Wizards are the fifth seed. That's where we want. Leonza's only gives a shit about those two extra playoff games. So he and Grunfeld yeah. will go to the media and say, "Look, we were f- the fifth seed in the East and in a really good Eastern Conference." And admittedly, it is but a good Eastern not Conference. A, but it's an Eastern Conference in transitioning, where you could move up to the third seed with the way that it is. Like there isn't like this isn't a top. I don't know. This, or I would say it's, you should. It's be a the competitive fifth East. But it, it's this is the time where you should be in the third or second seed because you have so much more experience than some of these other teams because you're bringing back the same core and you've proven yourself as a winning team that is can consistently make the playoffs. So, yeah, being the fifth seed would really, really suck. Now, actually, I would like to see them fall to the sixth seed and play Cleveland and just get it over with. They want to talk how they can beat Cleveland. Let's let's do it in the first round. This is probably the year, the best chance you have at beating them. So why not? Why face Miami in the first round and really be disappointed? Let's just drop down to the sixth seed, take on Cleveland, give them the best shot, have one hell of a series, and see what happens. Only a half game out of the sixth, at least as of today, only a half game yeah. out of the sixth place. So, um, it's, that is that is what I would like to see from an entertainment perspective at this point in the season. Yeah. You, I, my, my argument to all of this is the fifth seed is not acceptable in the Eastern Conference when you have $500 million tied up and you're one, two, and three. Right. Like, that's just not an acceptable, you know, uh, outcome. That, well, we made the fifth seed. Yeah, you have a, a super max and two max contracts and you're one, two, and three. And you're trying to tell me that, that that netted you the fifth seed in the Eastern Conference. You're behind the Miami Heat and you're behind... You're behind the Miami. You can't even win the, your southeastern division when you have a $500 million backcourt and plus a wing. But that's fine. I mean, that's that's how it's going to be rationalized over here. And, and unfortunately, the, I don't know that his seat is going to warm up, even though every single person who watches the Wizards will be like, we need a change. You know, We need someone new. The entire league is either moving to proven GMs who are analytics-based or younger GMs who are analytics-based. And meanwhile, we've still got this old fart. Yeah, because the starting five is great. It's consistently been the rest of the team. Now, I do think that 
They have a couple decent bench players, but they really only go right now. They only go too deep. It's Sato, who's not even that good. He just isn't good. He's just looks good in comparison, in comparison. to the rest of their and and Ubre and Mike Scott every now and then. And the rest of the bench is is again. It's pretty terrible. I mean, you can't count on any kind of consistent minutes from anybody. Yeah, we're dumpster diving again with the Jody Meeks of the world. Like we knew that, which was know. fine, which was a low. But that's that's because that's all they could afford at the time. They had wasted all their cap space. I always look so, at guys. Like I have that. one quick question. Yeah, were you disappointed that Wall made the All Star game? I don't think he was deserving. Um, I don't. I didn't have a compelling argument to say like, oh, X should have made it. Like, I hate when people are like, oh, so and so shouldn't have made it. Should have made the All Star team or shouldn't have made the All Star team because my argument would always be then, okay, instead of who. And I don't really have necessarily like an instead of who should like who should have been in Wall's place. Well, the um, the only ones would be the Pistons, Tobias Harris or yeah, Andre that. Drummond. No, that's that's a, that's a big fat fuck which, which you could, but. I honestly wanted Wall to get snubbed just because he needs some fuel because I think his his hate tank is kind of low because he's been getting – you know, he got that new Adidas contract. He got his Supermax extension. You know, he's he's been fluffed up enough that I think he needs that, that, that you know, hate tanker filled back up so that – and I think an all-star snub would have done it for him, especially with Beal getting it. Yeah, like, um, I guess I'm not making the argument. I don't know. You could have a compelling debate, and I don't know that I would be so pro-wall if someone was going to counter with, I think Ben Simmons should have made it. Like, that's an interesting conversation. I'm not saying he should have. I'm just saying that's an interesting conversation. Um, But the rest of the guys, like Kemba Walker and Andre Drummond, yeah, fuck them. I don't know. Right. Yeah, I don't care. Um. The West was much more interest, interesting in terms of the guys who didn't didn't make it. Um, well, name. really, isn't it? Well, I thought Lillard should. I thought Lillard should. Uh, but so it's it was really between him and Paul George. Yeah. So I could, I could, I really, I don't know. I thought it was Lillard should have gone last year. So I think this was kind of like a makeup call. I think you could also argue the same thing that Bradley Beal's a little bit of a makeup call. Like he had a better season last year, but it was just a much more you know loaded, um, loaded group. So they're kind of just slipping in Beal this year. But that notwithstanding, um, we talked about it again with Jake. It's like you know the team needs a change at some level. I don't know that there is a change to be made. I kind of think this is what we're locked into, and it's really just how do they finish the rest of the season. Um, do they get healthier? Can they, whatever the fart is in the locker room with the stench is just kind of marinating in there. Can they shake that? I don't know. I think that's the, really the storyline for the second half of the year. And right now they're in a funk. I don't know if time off, I mean, the all-star breaks not for what, three weeks. So it's not like time off is pend- impending, but like. They need it. They, they need, need it. it bad. They they just need to, everyone needs to walk away from this situation and regroup and otherwise the problem is that their schedule gets harder yeah. after the All-Star break. They've had a relatively easy schedule in comparison to what they're going to have to face in the home stretch. So that's what's really concerning. If they can't pick up some 
some more wins before the all-star break, they're really going to have trouble picking up wins to wrap up the season. Yeah, they're two and what? They're three and six over their last nine, right? Yeah, two, not, three, not good four, enough. Four, five, five, sorry. So they're three and five over their last eight, and if they lose tonight to, or to Oklahoma City, they'll be three and six over their last nine. That's not good, and and you can't you can't score only 75 points against the Mavericks and allow them to beat you by tw- almost 25 points. Like that's That's just right after a team meeting, no less. Like, come on, man. Yeah, that's pretty pathetic when you lose to one of the worst teams in the NBA. And it's not like it was a back-to-back night where you're like, oh, man, they really had that brutal bout the night before and they kind of got a hangover. Nope, nope. They had two nights, two days off, plenty of rest, completely shat the bed. Yeah, it's pretty sad. I did find it interesting, though, like if they're trading Gortat and like your, your best options are Alex Burke. Yep. And you have to give up a first, and maybe you get some other ancillary young player. I was like, oh my god, that's just terrible. And then the other options are like atrocious contracts like Nick Batum and Kent Bazemore. I'm like, they're they're really going to have a hard time making a move, even though they need to. So I have two questions for you, and then we'll wrap it up. First question, would you rather the team... If you knew that if the team made the playoffs as one of the bottom four teams in the Eastern Conference, you knew that was going to happen regardless of what moves you did or did not make for the remainder of their season, would you roll with this current team knowing that that's the future, play whoever it is in the playoffs, presumably lose in the first round because you are the underdog, and then go into next year with the flexibility of knowing that you have Keith, excuse me, you have um, Gortat on an expiring, and you could possibly make a move next year to really improve the team, plus keeping your one this year, so you get to draft in June, and then you get to move Gortat. Gortat's a much more prime asset next year um, as an expiring, or would you rather make the move this year and, and possibly lose the one this year? The problem with going forward is they have so much money tied up in auto, Beal, and Wall that no matter what they do, they're not going to have any money to get anybody of substance. So all they're going to be able to, to sign is just, you know, basically mid-level exception guys to fill out the roster and young players. So if you want to keep your core three together, I think your best move is to keep your draft pick. Because anything else you're going to get is going to be short term. Yeah, my inclination is the same way. Just let it run with what we have. It is what it is. Hope you know. Hopefully, they don't do something horrifically stupid with the draft pick. It'll probably be in the twenty three, twenty four range again. Um, and then next year, maybe try to do something when you have players that are more reliable or more um, valuable to be traded. So, I mean, if something ridiculous came out there, I mean, they definitely have to keep their their ears open to opportunities because if maybe they can get in on a three team trade or maybe they I don't know what they can do. But if they can somehow, you know, get a Cousins or a Kevin Love, you know, then you, you make that move. But if you're just getting like an Alex Burks, he just doesn't 
doesn't move the needle at all for me. I he think, doesn't move, move, move the needle for Utah, let like, alone anyone else. Right. Like he's barely getting playing time and you're saying, oh, that's like your best option for dumping Gortat's salary. I'm like, yeah, I think I'd rather just sign whatever cast offs are, you know, wave players, buyout players that become available and keep my first round pick. And then my second question might seem silly, but I wonder sometimes if there's anything to this. So John Wall called J.J. Barea midget. That's fun. Well, which he is, except what's sad is he's like my height. <laughs> right. But then Barea countered with, I don't think Wall's teammates like him. Do you think there's anything to that? Or do you think that's just going back to square one with the Gortat and Porter thing? I, I think it goes back to square one with Gortat because, man, those – those international players kind of stick together. So yeah, I think if he had point. any level of feedback, he probably got it from Gortat because I, I I definitely think that um, Morris and Beal and, and Ubre and a couple of the other guys like playing with Wall. And really, Otto should like playing with Wall because Wall's made him a lot of money. Yeah. But maybe he's lost sight of that. I don't I don't think so but i don't yeah but it is the the one that hurt was like when he said that i finally found somebody in the nba i don't like and it's john wall and it's like wait what about like ron artest or like matt barnes all these yeah all these nasty guys and really john wall i'm like yeah the guy who does all he can for his his city and his hometown doing charity outreach he's actually you know a good community member and that's the worst guy really walls a yapper a little bit like it's fine but no more no nothing worse than what other players in the nba are like is he any worse than kevin garnett no god no hell no exactly so i don't i just think that was really taken out of context and then i'm like why am i listening to a guy who hasn't been relevant in five years exactly all right fair enough thank you john for your input i agree um whatever it is what it is hopefully all start break they can have a priest come and perform an exorcism um thank you very much to everyone who's listening especially to both parts of the podcast as i've always implored after every episode make sure you subscribe to us and leave us some feedback on itunes make sure you follow us on soundcloud uh keep it locked over here we'll have a couple more great podcasts over the next couple of weeks um a few guests i'm really excited about so make sure you keep an eye out on the future episodes coming but once again thank you so much Thank you for listening to the Hail to the District podcast. Be sure to subscribe to us on iTunes or wherever you download your podcasts.